WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. Just a few seconds before 4 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, November 14th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Today we're bringing you to a panel discussion on the election of Trump one year later that was held at the University of Maine last Thursday. The panelists were Kimberly Hamill of the Bangor Racial and Economic Justice Coalition, Maya Denninger of the Socialist Party of Maine, and Doug Allen, a professor of philosophy and a peace activist who also moderated the discussion. This is Doug Allen. This series gets its name from its main sponsor, which is uh, Marxist and Socialist Studies uh, Interdisciplinary Minor. That's an academic minor at the University of Maine. We're also co-sponsored by the Maine Peace Action Committee and uh, co-sponsored by the uh, Division of Student Affairs, the Dean of Student Affairs Office here at UMaine and with support from the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. So today's program is on the election of Trump one year later, and we're going to have three presenters. The first presenter is going to be Kimberly Hamill, and uh, Kim uh, is really the leader uh, of the uh, Bangor Racial and Economic Justice Coalition. And in talking about uh, the election of Trump one year later, I think she'll be focusing a lot on uh, issues of racism and other discrimination. I want to start by sharing a couple of stories that have come up in our community in the last couple of months. Almost a month ago, a Bangor woman and her mother were assaulted while running errands. They were going to the bank. The woman parked her car at the door to help her mother exit the vehicle because her mother is having some health issues and she needed to be close. While she was exiting the vehicle, though there were several other cars parked similarly, a man Uh, A white man chose to enter the space of this woman who is Indian and her mother um, while they were in the process of um, exiting the vehicle and the man started to call the woman the C word. The woman quickly attempted to leave to move the vehicle because it was upsetting the man, um, but the man did not move away. He continued to confront the woman's mother, so she got out of the vehicle again because she was scared for her mother's safety. Um, and when she returned, the man said to her, get the F out, you C word. So the woman decided to put her mother back in the car because it felt unsafe, and so she did. And in the process of doing this, The man left and she did not get a license plate because she was terrified. The woman's mother reported once they were back in the car that the man had said that she should go back to her country and to get out of the country while while the woman was attempting to move the car. 
the women and her mother did not call the police because this happens to them all the time. Uh, the woman's mother is a small business owner and brewer and reports this has been a weekly occurrence for them even before the election. However, since the election, it's increased dramatically and the police never do anything um, to really address the incident um, or to address their fear. And that's something that as a community we need to address. In September, a Holton woman was assaulted during the End Violence <clears throat> Together rally in March in Bangor. A different white man, a different agitator, and not a participant of the event, entered the space of the woman and her mother while they walked, while they marched, I'm sorry. The man was wearing Confederate flag regalia. The man, again, entered the personal space of these women and started to engage them in a conversation about race. The woman in this situation became angry and flipped the man's hat off his head. And then the man assaulted her, he punched her he hit her in the head, he choked her, and, and pushed her over the side of a bridge. The incident was not classified as a hate crime, though. Um, it was declared as mutual combat. The police didn't press charges on either one of the people involved. For me, what I reflect on in the story is that the moral seems to be that when people of color respond to incitement or hate speech directed at them, they're treated like there's either no problem or they're treated like they're the problem, they're causing the problem if they respond to it in any other way except for turning the cheek, which for most of us, if we come into a dangerous situation, we have three choices. We're going to fight, we're going to flee, or we're going to freeze. The impact of this happening is that um, these women don't feel safe. These women were approached together. They were not alone in the community. They were, they were together with their mother. They were, they were not alone. And what stands out to me is that these men felt so emboldened that they approached these women. That's, in both cases, they felt so comfortable doing that. I think it's important to point out the racism and the interaction if it's not obvious because the Confederate flag, um, the man used the word rebel to describe himself, which I forgot to mention. Those are dog whistles. That's coded language. That's something that's designed to attack them. We don't always pick up on it. That's happening all the time. And if we don't know what a dog whistle is, then what's happening in both situations is this. Bystanders are standing there watching these women be assaulted and they're not doing anything. Because for one, they don't recognize an assault is happening until it's becoming violent. For two, most of us feel afraid when we see something happening like that. Some of us will engage and some of us will stand back because we're afraid. And so that's something that as a community we, start, we need to start to address too, is our fear. Do we want this community to be a safe and comfortable place for everyone? So I wanna talk about the Trump effect, what the data tells us about increase in hate, increase in racism, increase in Islamophobia, increase in uh, transgender violence, in 
increases in violence and hate across the board. Um, one week following the election, ProPublica reported hate crimes were up, but the government's not doing a good job of keeping track. We're not doing a good job of keeping data so we know exactly how many crimes are happening. So we know every day what the landscape of hate is in our country. We don't know. What we know is that one month following, there were more than a thousand acts of bias reported. And three months after the election, there was a jump in hate violence reported across the country that has not been quantified yet. But what we know is that there were over 300 incidences that occurred on university campuses and in K-12 schools. And we're talking about three months in. When we hit to 10 months after the election, the center Sorry, I'm going to mess this up. The Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino, backed up this data with their own study. And what they found is that across the board, there's been at least a 5% increase from 2015 to 2016. It marks the first time in over a decade that this country has experienced a consecutive annual increase in crimes targeting people based on their race, religion, sexuality, disability, national origin. In Maine, we don't have a system to analyze this data, but what we do know is that data kept on hate crimes showed that from 2015 to 2016, there were 98 victims of hate in Maine, and from 2013 to 2014, there were 60. And so if my math is correct, and somebody who's better at math can, can call out the actual number if I'm wrong, it seems to represent a 63% increase, and I'm the one who's analyzing these numbers. No one else in our community is doing that. Or at least not that I was able to find before I was preparing for this panel today. Again, if other people have resources for me, I definitely would want to know following this. But in, in preparation for this panel, I attempted to follow up. I attempted, I wanted to find data about our community. I wanted to find out about UMaine. I wanted to find out about our schools. And what I found out was that there isn't a formal data collection method. There isn't anyone quantifying. And I think one of the reasons why is because even in the, if we look at the situation with the woman who was violently assaulted for flipping a man's hat off his head, that a lot of times these incidences of hate are not quantified unless the person is turning the other cheek and is doing nothing to defend themselves, is doing nothing to protect their liberty or defend their liberty. And, and I think as a community, one of the things that's coming up for us is that we're not having hard conversations about what that looks like. We're not talking about from another person's perspective, what is it like to not be able to be free to walk through this community without seeing a dog whistle or experiencing one? And is that a safe and com comfortable community for everyone if that's <clears throat> happening here? Our community has some real strengths. We have over 100 community justice organizations in Penobscot Valley alone. There's strong grassroots organizing presence here. We have a citizens initiative process here. But the weaknesses are the 100 community justice organizations in the Penobscot Valley. We're not all working together.
there's some competition instead of merging we're not we're not unifying our vision we're not all working together and that's something that we can start to do better there's lack of engagement in community building and there's lack of community and people are feeling very isolated and that's a real weakness when it comes to being able to move forward if everybody is engaging in these very polarizing feelings and conversations and not really focused on what's affecting our community and what's affecting our family, then that's a problem too. <clears throat> Opportunities we have are in community groups. I'm with the Bangor Racial and Economic Justice Coalition. Um, we're a community group and there's opportunities in those groups to find a niche, find a an area where you know that you can lead. In our community, we started to address um, hate by coming together and, and showing our community was responding to it. And now it's really important that we take that the next step further and we start to have conversations and, and we're starting to, to really want to look at how do we do that? How do we have these conversations? But that's the opportunity that we have right now is to start talking about it. Everyone with a cell phone can record data and there's a real need, a real opportunity, maybe even at this university and people in this room to take that in and to start keeping track, to, to have a database, to have faculty and students who are invested in knowing if our community is a safe place and to give some feedback on that Threats are dog whistle politics, are the fact that we don't know when someone is being assaulted right in front of us. Lack of police accountability, like the case I'm talking about, about the, the woman who owns the business in Brewer, she's harassed all the time and she's a business owner. There's no community response for her. And I cannot imagine that happening in many other cases where if a business owner who'd worked in our community for decades was being harassed and the police did nothing to address it. Cannot imagine that happening. And follow through. There seems to be a real lack of follow through when we know that incidences have happened. Um, you know, we respond in the moment, we respond in sound bites, but keeping track and following through and keeping up there's so many things that are happening in the course of a day or a week that our energy is low. So finding ways for us all to, to engage in the, in the thing that moves us, engage in the, in the area of hate or the area of concern that we have for our community to make it stronger. We cannot all address everything, but if everybody here who's sitting here and knows something is weighing on your heart does one thing, then we're making a real difference. Thank you guys so much. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This is a panel discussion held at the University of Maine last Thursday on the topic of the election of Trump one year later. Uh, second speak speaker will be Maya Denninger, uh, who teaches at several uh, universities, institutions, and she is the uh, statewide officer of the Socialist Party of Maine. And she will be focusing on issues of capitalism and socialism uh, since the election of Trump. In thinking 
about Donald Trump, it's important to realize that everything that we're fighting against was not created by Donald Trump, but is the result of historical processes that have been ongoing for decades. The political, social, and economic crisis we are experiencing today in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis is a result of the severe wealth inequality caused by decades of tax cuts for the rich and the gradual dismantling of the welfare state combined with high unemployment, underemployment, and low wages resulting from a decline in union membership, the offshoring of manufacturing jobs, and automation. These economic policies, which favor Wall Street, big business, and the rich, have been pursued for the past 40 years by Democrats and Republicans alike. The Clinton administration, in particular, played a major role in shifting resources away from social welfare and toward prisons and police terror as a solution to poverty. This expansion of the police state was part of a racist ideology of black criminality used to divide the black and white working class. The Obama administration, in addition to supporting the far-right economic agenda of Wall Street, which continues to wreak devastating havoc on the poor and working class, oversaw the deportation of 2.5 million immigrants, more than all presidents of the 20th century combined, the entrenchment of the surveillance state, and a total refusal to seriously address the global crisis of climate change and ecological decline. There are many who viewed the presidential race between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as a race between good and evil. Many who torture themselves thinking if only it had gone the other way, if only she had won, things would be so different. This kind of thinking is not only unproductive, but disguises the nature of the problems we face as a society. Hillary Clinton was and is a millionaire with close ties to Wall Street, the military industrial complex, the for-profit prison industry, and other powerful economic interests. She is a member of the class who directly profits from racism and neocolonialism, poverty, war, and environmental destruction, and her policy was agenda was designed to perpetuate and advance these class interests. While the election of Donald Trump is undoubtedly an alarming development, if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, the work we are doing to build a movement for socialism and liberation would be just as pressing. There are many who argue that Clinton still would have been better than Trump, and it is true that people have literally lost their lives as a result of his election. Heather Heyer, a socialist activist, was killed by a white nationalist at a neo-fascist rally in Charlottesville, and many others have lost their lives or been harmed in racially motivated attacks since the election of Trump, as has been pointed out by Kimberly. And this is tragic and frightening, but so are the deaths of the garment workers who perish in factory fires in Bangladesh, the innocent people cared, killed by American bombs in the Middle East, the children who drank poisoned water in Flint, Michigan, the indigenous people displaced from their ancestral, ancestral lands by capitalist forces all across North and South America. These are the victims of what is euphemistically called globalization, but what is really the white supremacist empire of American capitalism, an empire that began before Trump and would have continued even if he had lost the election. So my point here is that our struggle is not just against Donald Trump, but against the capitalist system that created the conditions for his ascendancy. Trump's racism is neither new nor unique, but built on a tradition of racist ideology used by the ruling class and its representatives in both major parties to divide the working class and subjugate people of color, native people, and immigrants. What's new is Trump's particularly vicious rhetoric and his open support for white nationalist movements. If you look at some of the major populist movements of recent years, 
Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, all of those began during the Obama administration, well before Trump entered the political scene. The danger of focusing too much on Trump is that it disguises the continuity of an agenda that in fact is shared by the entire political and economic elite, and it disguises the continuity of popular struggles for justice and freedom. If we want to make real change, we have to transcend the illusion that there is a substantial difference between the Democratic and Republican parties. We cannot take back the White House or take back Congress because they were never ours to begin with. What we have to do, then, is build an organized movement of working class and poor people and all people who are marginalized or oppressed by the current system. Rather than allowing the Democratic Party to co-opt and neutralize popular anger, we have to build power in our communities that is independent of the capitalist parties and their narrow vision of progress. While popular anger toward the political and economic establishment has been growing for years, especially since the financial crisis, the recent presidential election has served as a catalyst for what may turn out, hopefully, to be the rebirth of socialist politics in the United States. This has just as much, if not more, to do with the Bernie Sanders campaign as it does with Trump's victory. Popular struggles of the past 20 years have tended to be negative. The anti-globalization movement, the anti-war movement during the Bush administration, Occupy Wall Street protesting against inequality, Black Lives Matter protesting against police brutality, and so on. With the Sanders campaign, we saw articulated on the national stage the beginning of a positive vision. That is, rather than the left simply protesting or fighting against something, we were with Sanders' campaign fighting for things we believed in universal health care, higher wages, higher taxes on the rich, renewable energy, and so on. To fight back against Trump, against white nationalism, against climate change, against poverty and exploitation, we have to keep building this positive vision of the future, this vision of an alternative society, what we call socialism. After Trump's victory, anarchists and socialists around the country helped organize and participate in protests and demonstrations. We saw significant growth in membership in socialist organizations such as the Democratic Socialists of America and the Socialist Party. According to polls, young people today are increasingly critical of capitalism and increasingly open to the labels socialism and even communism as alternatives to the current system. Around the country, a new generation of activists are building organizations in their communities, not just to fight local battles over public transportation or higher wages or police brutality, not just to protest the Trump administration, but to link these struggles to a broader movement for social transformation. We've also seen the rise of the anti-fascist movement, or Antifa, a decentralized movement which uses direct action to confront and disrupt the political activity of white nationalists who are emboldened by the election of Trump. Part of what the socialist movement must do is help to define what it means to be anti-fascist. As I've already argued, it is not enough to be against fascism. We must fight to art articulate and realize an alternative. We've also seen the mass mobilization of women as demonstrated in the Women's March and other organized efforts of feminists to protest Trump. I was, like many, inspired and relieved to see women and allies take to the streets in such great numbers. But again, it is important to frame these protests in terms that address the root cause of current conditions and not just the symptoms. We don't just need female leadership of the oppressive systems already in place. We need to harness that energy and direct it toward accomplishing what has always been the goal of radical feminism, dismantling oppressive and patriarchal systems like capitalism. So my sense of some of the sentiment behind the theme for this talk 
is to serve as a way to process some of the events of the past year, to look back on what has been accomplished in response, and to look forward to how we can continue to organize to address the consequences of the Trump administration and the conditions that led to it. So I'd like to shift now to talking about more concrete subjects, namely what specifically we have been doing in the Socialist Party of Maine and what we hope to accomplish in the future. To give you a little more context, the Socialist Party of Maine is part of the Socialist Party of USA, a national FEC-recognized political party dedicated to fighting for socialism through a combination of community activism and participation in electoral politics. The Socialist Party operates with a decentralized structure based on feminist and democratic values. We call for organizational structures based on rotating and fluid leadership, gender balance, and processes that welcome and enable open and equitable participation in discussion and decision making. We call for the abolition of every form of domination and exploitation, whether based on social class, gender, race, ethnicity, age, education, sexual orientation, or other characteristics. And finally, we call for social ownership and democratic control of productive resources and for a guarantee to all of the right to participate in societal production and to a fair share of society's product in accordance with individual need. In pursuit of these goals, we have open meetings in which we plan events and determine strategies to help support and build alliances with other community organizations, and we also try to run our own candidates in elections. Over the course of the past year, we have worked with food and medicine to help them build community gardens, and we have tried to support their efforts for transportation for all. We also will be helping with the Solidarity Harvest, which helps to provide food to struggling Maine families. We want to continue working with food and medicine and hopefully develop even more of a relationship with them in the future, and it's looking good because as of last night, Adam Thiessen of Food and Medicine and I are in a band together with Tom Whitehassler of the Socialist Party of Maine, so if you need a band for a gig, let us know. <laughs> Our members have also attended meetings of the Bangor Racial and Economic Justice Coalition to learn about the work they're doing and how we might be able to help support it. Other members have attended Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition meetings, and we are working with them now to plan a prisoner advocacy event. Other members have gone canvassing with the Maine People's mm -hmm. Alliance to support ballot initiatives that they're working on. So a lot of the work we do revolves around helping other organizations do the work they do. The key for us, though, is to connect this engagement with local struggles with our analysis of capitalism. Community organizations, and since I'm on a college campus, I'll add student organizations, cannot function effectively as islands. We believe that all of these struggles, struggles against poverty, against sexism and sexual violence, against racism, against the exploitation of indigenous people, against the privatization and profitization of the prison system, are linked. And only through organizing together and building consciousness about how and why these struggles must target the capitalist system will we be able to succeed. We also have begun to participate in electoral campaigns. Most recently, one of our members, Seth Braun, ran for Bangor City Council. He didn't win, but he did get about 15% of the vote, which was really incredible given the fact that it was his first time running for office and our first time running any kind of campaign. Um, we also have more members planning to run for Orono Town Council. Spoiler, I might be one of them. Uh, and our goal is to run candidates for the 2018 election on the local, county, and state levels. Ideally, we would like to run a gubernatorial candidate as well. As we aim for these goals, we are focused on continuing to grow the Socialist Party. Just this past week, we had a new chapter form in Belfast, so there are now three local chapters in the state and more likely to form soon. 
Our membership is growing rapidly, and with a number of active members, we are able to focus on popular education efforts, like helping to organize and be present at community events like the Earth Day celebration, the Climate March, the Inclusivity Rally, various Pride events, etc., and by having our own education events, like the Universal Healthcare Talk we gave over the summer, uh, and a feminism and socialism discussion being held next Tuesday. In sharing our analysis of capitalism, we hope to increase class consciousness and therefore increase participation in struggles for change. As we look ahead to the next three years and the election to follow it, it's important to remember that the revolution we desperately need will never come from the top down. Revolution will only happen if people come together to fight for it. With looming economic and environmental disaster across the globe, we have no time left now to lose. I would obviously like if everybody joined the Socialist Party, but at the very least, uh, it is important for everyone to join with some struggle for freedom and equality in their community, and preferably not just groups that focus on ephemeral protests like marches and rallies, but organizations that look ahead to strategically build community and political power uh, and replace that seek not only to protest, but replace oppressive systems. With mass mobilization, we can change the world that led to the election of Trump. Greed, white supremacy, patriarchy, the most horrible aspects embodied by the Trump administration are not just attitudes that we can erase or suppress by electing someone like Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton or Michelle Obama the next time. They are symptoms of a global economic system. To fight it, we need to mobilize, we need to organize, and we need to fight for a revolution to fundamentally change our social, political, and economic systems. We need to build a society that doesn't just condemn oppression, but abolishes it. Only then can we build an alternative society of universal peace, freedom, and true equality. This is a panel on the topic of the election of Trump one year later that was held at the University of Maine on November 9th. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. The final speaker is Doug Allen, professor of philosophy and activist with the Maine Peace Action Committee and the Peace and Justice Center of Eastern Maine. So uh, I'm going to focus on violence. Uh, violence is nothing new, uh, but what in terms of the genocide of native people, slavery, and endless examples one can give. So what is different about violence during the election and since uh, the election of Trump a year ago? The uh, one thing I was a little reluctant to say, but I'll share, was because uh, then the focus will be on the Trumpian era. Uh, is uh, it was clear during the election that Trump, in a certain blatant way, uh, the violence uh, in terms of his language, his values, his personality, his history, was really horrifying. Uh, but what may be surprising is during the campaign, I was not sure whether, in fact, Hillary Clinton was more or less violent than Donald Trump. And I say this because then we'll say what's new about Trump, but uh, from my understanding over many decades, uh, Hillary Clinton, in fact, uh, one reason she lost to Obama in 2008 is because she had so supported the Iraq War. And he used that. And she was a hawk, had always been a hawk in Afghanistan, 
In, in the Obama administration, the Secretary of State, she was the most hawkish member of that cabinet. And she uh, had supported all of the big trade agreements that imposed so much violence on workers uh, throughout the world and in the United States. And in fact, she identified with the Wall Street corporate interest, which, as I'll try to show, uh, are at the heart of economic violence. Have, so what is new about Trump? It's not the violence, but there is, there is a lot that's very new that we have to address. And there is a kind of unprecedented level of overt uh, terrifying violence that in many ways is unprecedented, at least during my lifetime, from any president. So try to analyze. I can give you one anecdote that was very revealing. As some of you know, uh, October 2nd was the United Nations International Day of Nonviolence. That was Mahatma Gandhi's birthday. It's a big event, and I had the honor of uh, being asked to address the General Assembly at the United Nations, and it was a very, very positive experience. Not surprising, but um, very revealing was the fact that no one from the Trump administration even bothered to attend. Nikki Haley, the ambassador, not even some flunky just to sit in was there. There was no pretense, even hypocrisy. We have no interest in an international day of nonviolence. And as many of the top people at the UN told me in private discussions, Trump had spoken in that same General Assembly two weeks before, and they were horrified by his violent language. You simply do not get up and talk about wiping North Korea off the map, destroying over 20 million people. And the language that he used with regard to Iran and other issues was just so transparently violent that it shocked them. So I think this is revealing. And I can first relate to the two presentations. In terms of Kim's, right, there's, uh, if I focus just on racism and violence, racism is always violent. And there's nothing new about racism, including in the history of the United States. And in my own personal background, for example, when I lived in the segregated South, was involved in civil rights, that racism, that white supremacy was often very overt. It was not hidden by politicians and other powerful people in the South. After the Lyndon Johnson administration changes with the civil rights legislation, the voter rights legislation, there was a backlash, especially exploited by Nixon as orchestrated by Pat Buchanan. And this was originally called the Southern Strategy which became a whole U.S. strategy. And what the Southern strategy cynically said, you know, 
Why are we catering to blacks, a native, other people of color? Actually, uh, do you know, in terms of the majority of voters, and especially the power majority in this country, there are more people who don't like people of color. And in fact, uh, then are motivated by the desire of justice and equality for all. And so actually, that kind of racism can be part, often in coded language, states' rights, things like that, can be part, in fact, of our policy. And in fact, that's defined certainly much of the policy and certainly most of the Republican Party policy ever since. So what's new? What's new, I would say, in terms of that racism is that now there's a certain openness of blatant, violent racism. The best example is Charlottesville, but you could cite many more from the last year, in which um, if there is any violence that seems initially to be attributed to African Americans, right, or immigrants, or Muslims, other people of color. Donald Trump usually tweets within seconds, and his tweets are violent. Sometimes he calls even for people to be executed, for all due process to... When it came to Charlottesville and these examples, he, he hesitates. He says he's studying the issue. He doesn't, and then when he's pressured into responding, he says, well, they're good people on all sides. Kind of equating the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, the racists with the anti-racist. Okay, so what's happened is White supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other racists have correctly perceived we have an ally in the White House. Not only that, but it gives a respectability to their racism. Right? Sometimes this is coded, but often it's blatant and undisguised. And there's a double standard when it comes to racism. Uh, and you can see it in Trump's history. Trump's father was a supporter of the Ku Klux Klan and was even arrested in Klan rally. Trump's whole history, his personality, his policies and so forth, have always been racist. Okay. The, um, and there's a double standard in terms of how he relates to white people and how he relates who he basically bends over backwards, identifies with, and how he relates to blacks. And it's a double standard in the sense that he is also such a blatant sexist. So we have a kind of um, double standard towards blacks, Latinos, Mexicans, people of color, immigrants, Muslims. And in terms of the blatant sexism, Trump, in terms of his violence, has a lot of trouble with strong women. And what he hates the most is uppity strong black women towards whom he is extremely violent in his responses. When it comes to economic violence that Maya talked about, exploitation is always violent. 
Class inequality and domination by the economic powerful is always violent. I would, in my analysis, capitalism is in structurally exploitative, and hence it is structurally violent. So what's new? What's new is over a period of decades, starting in the late 70s and through the Reagan years, the Clinton years, and so forth, we've had this increasing concentration of wealth and power in the hands of the 1%, the upper part of the 1%. And if you look just at the uh, what's called the Paradise Papers that were released uh, in the last two days, for example, one of the latest new findings in the Paradise Papers is that eight people, eight people in the world have as much wealth as one half of the world's population. So, what's new with Trump? Again, what I would say, it's this blatant, open, exploitative approach. Greed, right? Violent capitalism that is undisguised. The, uh, an administration that simply is filled with billionaires. More than any administration in the history of the United States. Government simply becomes a means for furthering one's corporate and economic interest. What's good for Donald Trump as president means promoting his brand, promoting his golf courses, right? Promoting his hotels. What's good for him is supposedly good for the country. What's good for the elite, the wealthy, is supposed to be what defines the real America in the most violent ways at home and abroad. So, let me uh, just say there is that level that I'm talking about of overt uh, violence, but in my analysis, this is a small part of violence. You know, it's what gets the attention. Uh, And so, what I would add is just in the course of time, just add quickly, is uh, most, 90% of violence is not that kind of overt physical violence. We have multidimensional violence that we see in uh, the Trumpian policies in the last world. Namely, language can be very violent, and we've never had a president who uses more violent language. We have psychological inner violence. Donald Trump is a psychologically unstable human being who simply lashes out psychologically if he feels you're his friend, you praise him, and you can be the worst dictator or autocrat. If you praise him, he likes you. And if you raise criticisms of his policies, you are the enemy. And he is vindictive, and he will use violence to try to destroy you. Okay? about economic violence, cultural violence, religious violence, all this multidimensional violence. And if you look at the Trumpian supporters, the base of the strongest supporters, they are angry and often legitimately angry. There are real reasons and causes as to why they're angry, but they tend disproportionately to be older disproportionately less educated, 
disproportionately white, especially white males, and disproportionately more fundamentalist than evangelical Christians. And Trump, in a demagogic way, as all dictators and autocrats and demagogues do, exploits that anger and uses it in a violent way to define the other, not the real America, the immigrants, the people of color, the, and so forth, the others, the people who are not white, not Christians. In fact, they become the target of our violence. Okay? So, and then the other thing that I would say, last thing, is that the other dimension of violence to me that's very important is the structural violence of the status quo, business as usual. Right? And this is not new. Our economic system is structurally violent. Our political system, our cultural system, media are structurally violent. Our military industrial complex is structurally violent. So what is new, if I just quickly with Trump, I would say what's new with Trump is a sense of the new normal, the new normal in which structural violence is not challenged, much less transformed. In fact, just the opposite. After horrific acts of terrorism right, throughout the world and in the United States, the Trumpian administration and allied responses to such violence and terrorism is we need more nuclear weapons. We need more weapons of mass destruction, right? When there's gun violence, what we need is more guns. And we need more guns on campuses, in houses of worship, in malls, in all aspects of our life. This becomes the new normal, not something that we should challenge. One last example, when it comes to like uh, environmental climate change, the environmental violence and the catastrophe we face, what is Trump and his uh, spokespeople's response? The kind of science that goes on in this campus is phony science. What are scientific facts are just alternative facts or not facts. And in fact, what we should do in terms of fossil fuel uh, corporations and so forth is we need less regulation, not more regulation, but no regulations so they can simply do their thing. So I would say just in conclusion, so this becomes the nor new normal that we have, that we have to resist. So just the last sense I'd say is that the good news to all of this violence is of the past year is that for the overwhelming majority of us, who are concerned about the state of violence in our lives and in the world, Trump and his violent allies provide us with urgently needed and meaningful ways of nonviolent resistance and mobilization. And I see this every single day now in the community, people who have been sitting on the fence, who have, even those who don't contribute to the violence, but it wasn't their problem. They were silent, they see complicit. Now we're horrified and motivated, motivated. And you see that especially with the students and young people who have tended to be cynical, 
uh, in certain ways apathetic for good reason. More and more I see every day young people becoming engaged and realizing that unless they respond to all of this violence, in fact, uh, they will have no future world. So I think that's the encouraging thing. It gives us lots of opportunities to become engaged in meaningful ways. Okay, thank you. That was Professor Doug Allen, the final speaker on last week's panel at the University of Maine on the election of Donald Trump one year later. Unfortunately, we don't have time to bring you all of the question and answer session that followed, but we'll end with a question about attitudes toward the next election. I'm wondering about, I, I really appreciate the high ideals that I'm hearing. I wonder when high ideals can prevent incremental steps. So, uh, you know, there are people who will be, who will be thrown backward by the high ideals and I fear that we're not going to capture them. But to crystallize my question, mm -hmm. would Michelle Obama as a candidate for President of the United States be a good thing or a bad thing? Would you vote for Michelle Obama? I feel as if, uh, Maya Denver, right. maybe you wouldn't. And, mm -hmm. and I find that frightening. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the process of continually voting for the lesser of two evils led to a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who in other industrialized countries would both be considered, I mean, I don't know what Trump would even be considered, but, but Hillary Clinton would be considered a conservative by, by most measures. We don't really have a leftist mm -hmm. party in this country, and we won't if we continue to acquiesce and vote for candidates who don't represent our values if they think they can push whatever policy, whatever agenda they want and still win just based on the fact that they're not as bad as the next guy, um, then that's going to continue to shift us ever further to the right. And so I think voting for third party candidates, many people think of that as wasting a vote. I think the only way you waste for your, your vote is if you vote for somebody you don't believe in who doesn't represent your values or your interests and represent change. So I think um, I think that many people are frightened at the idea of Trump's or people like Trump continuing to win elections because we're splitting the vote. The only response to that can be to uh, continue to mobilize more people, make other parties real viable options, and try to understand and shift the anger and motivations that lead people to vote for somebody like Trump, rather than saying we all have to vote for somebody like Hillary Clinton or somebody like Michelle Obama. I think incremental change only works if it's actually progressing in, in one direction, and, and we have incremental change that ends up backsliding and actually pushing us further and further in the other direction. So mm -hmm. I think we have to reach for those ideals or we will definitely never get them, and in fact, we'll end up in the world we have. Did you have anything to want to add to that? Yeah, I I have the same thought a lot of the time about how do we take the high ideal and make it pragmatically workable in the community right now. And so what I hear you, what I think I hear you saying is that that someone like Michelle Obama seems to be a middle ground, right? She seems she seems to be someone who in, encapsulates um, 
a lot of the different things that as a country we would want. We want equality. We want somebody who's a voice for children. We want somebody who's a voice for women. Um, I think there's a lot of problems in our political system itself. And so looking at, Maya just was talking about um, conservatism in, in the Democratic Party that, that Barack Obama and Michelle Obama by most measures are, are conservative. Um, we, our country has moved right. Our country has moved towards, I would say, mm -hmm. capitalist, the, like fundamental extremism with capitalism and, and corporatism. And so Michelle Obama is, would be a conservative candidate by most measures. And if we're looking for left progressive progress, we need to look outside of the corporate Democrat model that has sort of taken over the Democratic Party because we're not seeing any change in that model. We're actually seeing the, the entire two-party system go to a fundamentally extreme place where, you know, for example, last year in Maine, you know, we're talking about you know, people who are Democrats are talking about welfare reform and they're talking about limiting access to food. And that's a great idea for welfare reform. That is, for me, that is an example of how we have moved left. We're not talking about how to make, um, make it so the majority of people can access services that they need. We're concerned about this one small group who might be abusing their services. And so in limiting what this one small group can do, we are making it so the majority of people cannot access the service. Mm -hmm. And so that's a problem. And so mm -hmm. if we don't look inside of the candidates that we're choosing and the model that we're choosing as Democrats and as progressive people, we are going to continue to go right and we're going to scratch our heads and wonder how are we going right when we have the majority of the people in our country, when we have the base mm -hmm. of people who support change mm -hmm. and will vote for change every four years in droves. Mm -hmm. and we keep going back mm -hmm. and so that comes to who we're choosing as candidates and Michelle Obama would be an example of that and so I think that that in and of itself is a really difficult conversation for us to have this is a progressive community that is conservative we're not pushing forward reform what we see as reform is limiting food access 34% more Children are hungry under Paul LePage, and Maine Dems are talking about limiting food access as welfare reform. So that's you know that's something that is weighing on me as a as a as a person who's involved in this community. And so that's that's the one example I can come up with right now. And I hope that was helpful to you. Yeah, I hope I don't you know, Cole. I hope I don't sound like the most conservative here of the panelists, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, no, I always contextualize things. And uh, in voting for president, for example, uh, usually I haven't voted for the Democrat. Uh, most times I voted for, like, Fred Halstead, who was the Socialist Workers' Party candidate out of Chicago. I voted for Dick Gregory for president, the comedian and activist. I'm not sure if I voted for Paul Pat Paulson, the uh, comedian, he certainly was more progressive than any of the candidates. And I voted for Ralph Nader, voted for, 
Uh, I actually voted for Hillary Clinton, held my nose, had no illusion. It's just the idea of Trump being president was so horrific. And I had to think about, like, friends of mine, for example, who were transgendered or people like this, living right now every single day under terror, every single day. And I said, well, I just can't forget about, you know. Uh, but the way I approach this is, which combines a little bit of this, is I don't think change comes about exclusively or even primarily through electoral politics. So what I say to people, my approach is you can approach, uh, support a candidate or not, enthusiastically or not. Often it's a good thing to do, but 90% of your work should not be with electoral politics. It ought to be grassroots organizing, bottom-up kind of change. Uh, significant changes often do not come through some formal legislation. There are all other ways that history changes. So I always say if you want to work in electoral politics, fine. And sometimes we can be enthusiastic about certain candidates. I would have been more enthusiastic about Michelle Obama than Hillary Clinton, but I would have had no illusion, you know, that in some way now we've elected. So, And that was the problem under Obama. A lot of people who were very critical of Bush didn't want to criticize Obama, and hence they didn't do the activist work. But I think we have to keep our ideals because that gives us a vision. That's not all of life. But without a vision, we cannot be successful in building a movement. The final lecture in the fall semester Marxist and Socialist Studies lecture series will be held this coming Thursday. It's at the at 12.30 p.m. at the Bangor Room of the Memorial Union at the University of Maine. And the topic will be Four Foundational Theories of Labor Activism in Maine. You've been listening to Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture here on WERU every Tuesday afternoon at 4 o'clock. I'm Amy Brown. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by a night of great music here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from